You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Peter Maravell is here, welcoming you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni people, from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the fall season and beyond. Tonight is a bit of a homecoming. We are delighted to have back in the house the fabulous Dodie Bellamy. This is celebrating the launch of two new books by her. Firstly, the book Bereaved, a new collection of essays written in her signature manner. Also, we're celebrating the long-awaited reprint of the legendary and influential debut novel, The Letters of Mina Harker. Both books are published by our friends over at Semiotex Books. They're one of the world's great purveyors of cutting-edge theory and avant-garde literature, best known for having introduced uh, French theory to American readers. They've been publishing Dodie's work for a while now, so happy to have them in our orbit. To give you a little bit of background about Dodie, uh, she's an award-winning novelist, nonfiction author, journalist, <laughs> and editor. She is one of the originators in the new narrative literary movement. Her books include The Cunt Ups, Cunt Norton, amongst others, together with her partner, the late Kevin Killian. She edited Writers Who Love Too Much, New Narrative Writing, 1977 to 1997. Dodie has also directed the San Francisco literary nonprofit and writing lab, Small Press Traffic. She has taught creative writing at San Francisco Art Institute, Mills College, University of California, Santa Cruz, USF, Naropa University, and CCA, amongst others. Joining her tonight is none other than Chris Kraus. She is also no stranger to City Lights, having graced our halls on numerous occasions. Chris is the writer, editor, also an event organizer, and filmmaker. She founded Semiotech's Native Agent series, publishing edgy fiction and poetry, mostly by women. Authors in the series have included Kathy Acker, Michelle T, Anne Rohr, Eileen Miles, amongst others. Chris's own novels include Aliens and Anorexia, Torpor, Summer of Hate, and I Love Dick, which uh, Joey Soloway adapted as a TV series produced by Amazon. Uh, she penned a biography of the late Kathy Acker, as well as the essay collection Video Green and Where Art Belongs. She's also edited and uh, co-edited numerous anthologies, including one of my favorites, Hatred of Capitalism, a semiotext reader. Her influence on the world of letters and literary theory is significant. It is a great honor to have her act as interlocutor for Dodie. Dodie, Chris, always a pleasure to have you at City Lights, even though we're living through the wires these days, but nonetheless, a delight to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Peter, so Jody, you're going to read first, right? And then we'll talk a little bit. Yeah, I am going to read first. I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from the Bereaved, this piece called Plague Widow. And uh, it's uh, about, I don't know if I set it up very well, but my cat had colon cancer. So she had diarrhea all over the house for months and months. So if you're a little confused why there's so much shit in the piece, that's why. Okay, so I'll start. And I wanna thank Peter who has disappeared. You know, one of the first times I read at City Lights, Peter gave me a birthday present. 
I think it was my birthday and it was a switchblade, which I thought was pretty cool, right? <laughs> but, uh, okay, so there's shit and piss all over the place. It's useless. B is barely able to manage a shower to organize, take her clothes to the wash and fold, feed herself, get anything done. She found herself bragging to Donna that she changes her underpants every day. She feels old and irrelevant as the characters in the final episode of the French TV series, A French Village, 2009-17. For five seasons, their town was occupied by Nazis. Life as they knew it was over. They were doing their best and then comes the liberation and they're condemned as collaborators. They walk through a France they no longer recognize, wearing really bad old people makeup. That's how aging feels to be, like she's a young person trapped beneath sagging prosthetics. TV assures her that dying never means the end. Through the pornography of flashbacks, Marcel is no longer executed by a German firing squad. Marie is no longer lynched in the town square, her body left hanging in the tree as a warning to other mouthy women. When they were alive, B would huff at how irritating Marcel and Marie could be. But when they return from the dead, her love for them is unstoppable. It's been over a year and Kevin's ashes remain on the floor of the living room closet in the package they arrived in unopened. Binging on 72 episodes of a French village B expected all the French she took in college to suddenly kick in and she'd understand what the villagers and Nazis were saying, but it didn't happen until the court case. The lawyers with their over enunciation sounded like the recordings she listened to ad nauseum in language lab. The violence and humiliation of those, occup those occupied endured their resistance, their living off of soup and chestnut puree, their grief and passionate sex with the wrong people. All that remained subtitled gibberish, with the lawyers denatured bureaucratic French anybody could understand. She washes her face the YouTube esthetician recommended 60 seconds, singing the alphabet song twice to mark the time. They've recently changed the rhythm of the alphabet song. Instead of LMNOP, it's now L-M-N-O-P, each letter enunciated as distinctly as a French lawyer. One guy complained. They changed the ABC song to clarify the L-M-N-O-P part and it's life ruining. And his tweet was like 105,000 times. B walks from room to room, eyes fixed on the floor, nothing. Then she checks her office. Underneath her desk is a box of beans from her bean club that has been sitting there for several months. Across the cellophane bag of green lentils, she spies a blotch of runny shit. She picks up as much as she can with a tissue, wipes off the green lentils with a paper towel and throws the lentils in the trash. She wipes off a smaller blob on the edge of the Rio Zapes opens the other end of the bag and empties the beans into a bowl. The other bags seem to have had minimal contact. She searches for five empty quart mason jars, finds three clean ones, one dirty, and she empties out another containing musty flaked coconut. 
She washes the two jars, dries them with a towel, blasts them with a hairdryer. Then she transfers the rest of the beans into jars, yellow eyes, black caviar, lentils, wild rice, vaqueros. She thinks of Psyche separating the lentils from the beans and grains. One of the many tasks she performs after sputtering the lamp oil on Eros's thigh. There's more cat shit on the sisal rug, more shit packed into one of the complicated wheels of her Herman Miller chair. B fetches a scrub brush and a bowl of warm water. The more she wipes, the deeper the shit burrows into the sisal fibers. B can't remember what happens to Psyche when her tasks are completed. She gets something that she is now worthy of, but what is that? After their first week in lockdown, her friends were already feeling bored and lonely. And even though they didn't admit it to her, afraid. They were texting her day and night and the flakiest among them was urgent to make a FaceTime date. When it comes to aloneness, they are such amateurs, whereas B is a pro. Widows are the prima donnas of aloneness. She wants to tell these mass babies, don't worry about it being more than you can endure. Because if that happens, you'll go into shock. And when you're hit with the unendurable loss, shock is the most wonderful gift. Reality, your feelings, memory, the horror of your situation are on the other side of this long, narrow tunnel. You couldn't reach them if you tried. All that muck is replaced by calm. Behind your stumbling words and confusion and even your tears, there is calm and erasure. She wrote in her journal those early days that Kevin ever existed is harder to grasp than his loss. With everyone alone, the aloneness of her mourning is violated. She's the one who's supposed to be wearing the widow's weeds, the special one who's set apart who receives and banishes visitors capricious as a queen. The plague is stealing her thunder. It's as if B's grief has seeped out and filled the world. Her isolation is now the human condition. She watches the end of the world, wizened, hunched over, doing whatever it takes, foraging mushrooms and berries, squeezing sustenance out of a mere strip of bark. She places the empty toilet paper tube of American culture over her mouth and chants, Rudy Toot Toot. For everything B wrote since the early 80s up until the week he died, Kevin was the first reader. As she writes now, it's like he's still there, his brain racing with ideas. She finds herself reworking passages with edits he would have made. Derek McCormick told her that after his horrific experience with cancer, the way he wrote beforehand no longer made sense. He had to figure out a new way of writing. He thinks about this at least once a day. Is the same true for her? Derek underwent an arduous surgery in which hot chemo was sloshed through his abdomen. B Googled the procedure. Its slang term is shake and bake. Shake for the swishing and bake for the heat of the chemo. The cruelty of the epitaph shocks me. This is a humor of someone who has seen too much too often. Someone who is struggling to maintain their humanity. 
all that pent up terror and rage, it either explodes inside you or is ejected in a burst of uproarious spittle. To laugh at chaos is to fuck chaos. B text Donna a photo of the urine soaked asphalt beside her car from when she went for a walk in the Castro. Because of COVID, there are no toilets anywhere. When she returned to her car, she had to pee so bad that right there, right in the busy residential neighborhood, she sat sideways in the driver's seat, half in, half out of the car, pulled down her pants and pissed on the street. Donna replies that her urine photo is, quote, the most superb text I have ever received in my entire life. She particularly enjoys the, quote, rogue drops of urine on the footboard of the car, for exclamation points, completely, utterly sublime. Bravo, madame. Bra fucking vo. Just as B is about to fall asleep, she smells something. She gets up and follows the scent, but she can't find anything. She turns on the flashlight of her iPhone, gets on her hands and knees, and looks under the bed. A pile of diarrhea. Even if she lies on the floor on her stomach, she cannot reach it. So she frantically scans her brain for something, anything that can be repurposed as a long-handled scooper. By the time she's cleaned it up, sort of, she's so wound up, sleep is hopeless. She retrieves her laptop, logs into Hulu, and continues watching season five, episode 12 of A French Village. Villeneuve has just been liberated and chaos reigns. A mob of townspeople accuse Hortense of being a crowd whore. They spit on her, strike her, chase her barefoot through the street, haul her in a cart to the town square where a chair appears for Hortense to sit as rustic men hack away at her blazing red hair with scissors. It's a carnival, everybody laughing and hooting and craning their necks for a better view, children included. Hortense sits tense and unmoving, bottling her terror inside. She wasn't a whore. She was in love with her Nazi, the top Nazi in charge of the town's occupation. In the midst of grim bureaucracy, they staged a grand problematic love affair, much more exciting than those of the repressed party first communists. The fury of the townspeople is fueled by their jealousy over the beautiful clothes booze and gourmet food lavished upon Hortense when most of them were starving. The Nazi was charismatic and refined. He and Hortense were thrillingly vivid together. Great on-screen chemistry, Kevin would have said. Even after the Nazi tortured Hortense, he was never portrayed as a nice guy. B found herself longing for them to be together. The series often made B cringe at her own desires. Nothing is simple and everything is impure. The hair clipping is finally done. Hortense's ragged bald head accentuates the gaunt angularity of her cheekbones. The camera peers in even closer, filling the screen with bloodshot eyes ringed with clumpy smeared mascara, rivulets of tears flowing downward. Medieval French proverb, dogs keep on pissing and women keep on weeping. During the liberation of France, 20,000 women were accused of collaborating, AKA sleeping with the German invaders. Like Hortense, they were publicly humiliated. Some were kicked to death in the streets. 
B first learned of these women from the song Shaved Women, 1979, by British anarcho-punk band Crass. The lyrics to Shake Women are minimal and repetitive, mostly shaved women collaborators and screaming babies. On the back of the record's cover is a photograph of a shaved woman who is surrounded by a jeering mob as she walks through shards holding her German baby. Just when it seems obvious that the time frame of the song is the 1940s, the lyrics dip into a more modern era, shaved women shooting dope, shaved women disco dancing. Women who shave their bodies in order to conform to a heteronormative dating aesthetic, is that too a form of collaboration? When Eve Libertine belts out screaming babies, she enunciates screaming at a normal register and babies as a shriek. And I cannot do this, so I'm too repressed. Screaming babies, screaming babies, screaming babies over and over. The words grow silly and frantic, a hysterical chant that fuses horror and comic. B. The lyrics online read babies screaming rather than screaming babies. If the online lyrics are correct, in Libertine's rendition, there is a weird pause between babies and screaming, an unnatural syncopation reflecting a world order that is out of whack. When Libertine shouts shaved women collaborators, it's not clear if she is critiquing the torture of these women or she's assuming the position of someone in the crowd announcing their arrival, their shame. The song dips into multiple positions at once. All of them are shattered. Shaved Women doesn't need the extended melodrama of a French village to create its meaning. The song throws us into the heart of an irreducible frenzy that hails everything and nothing. B was too shy and anal for the San Francisco punk scene, but she envied the women. They got to be nasty, nasty as men, nasty as children. The daughter of a construction worker, B was raised to be nasty, ribald, oversexed, and underclassed. She came across as a baby boomer wife of Bath. Employers and local literati alike recoiled from her. Her writing mentors, who were Marxists, told her that writing was a middle-class occupation. If you wanna be a writer, they said, you need to learn to be more middle-class. Since then, she's learned to behave herself, mostly. When you stick a dog in a tutu, a ballerina you do not make. A nasty woman never stops being nasty. She just ceases to bother. Instead of going to sleep, B sits up in bed with her phone and Googles wife of bath feces. While the wife of Bath makes more references to urine than any other pilgrim, she never mentions shit. B reads that Chaucer wrote her that way because back then, anti-feminist traditions often represented females as liquid dripping creatures. Listening to screaming babies on repeat, B imagines a reverse engineered version of herself, a vulgar girl who no longer is ashamed a girl whose words go boom, 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 their thuds so dense they decimate those who would straitjacket her. B has the leak of widowhood upon her. She goes forth impenetrable. One of those hard-edged women who having lost everything important to her can now shuffle through adversity unfazed. Like those old ladies in her childhood neighborhood 
widows who fled the persecutions of World War II, DPs, her father called them, the kind of widow who, when their, her toilet is clogged, rolls up a sleeve of her house dress, plunges her arm in the bowl and roots out the impaction with her hand, an aproned widow who acts like she'll kill you if you step on her lawn. A widow doesn't care if she's alone, doesn't care if she's fat and old and undesirable, doesn't even care if she dies. The cat stops in the doorway and makes a sloppy balloon popping sound. Crouching with her ass puffed out like a blowfish, her front legs extended, she releases an explosion of diarrhea, then walks away. These senses are assaulted over and over and over. Brute repetition replaces an entire system of meaning. That doesn't stop B from reading meaning in all of this. The cat is saying, I'm an animal. I will not be personified, will not be contained by your bourgeois expectations, will no longer pretend that the institution of pet is not a form of slavery. That night, Kevin comes to her. It's one of those untranslatable dreams that instantly erase themselves. B cries out, struggling to stay in the dream. His loss, a leaden wedge spreading over everything. The alarm rings and she gets up and walks toward the back of the apartment. In the living room, there is a main dump, then a small patch of smaller satellite dumps across the floor. In the kitchen, a scattering of smooth brown drops are arranged like the petals of a flower masterfully stitched on a linen cloth. She just misses stepping in it. The solidity of the cat's shitting, pissing, puking body keeps B from floating away. In the morning, as she feeds her, groggy and irritable, the cat cries desperately. The cat throws herself in front of B's feet as she walks to a cabinet to fetch a can of Mac and Jack. The cat has no sense of past or future, no logic or patience a ball of rumbling id. The cat makes the slightest squeaky meow and B knows to turn the kitchen chair in the optimal position for her to jump on the chair then onto the table. As B strokes her with a soft boar bristle brush, the cat purrs wildly. She says, I love you, my little poopy poo. And then uh, Peter asked me to read a bit from the letters of Mina Harker. So I'm just gonna read one kind of short paragraph. Is that okay, Chris? Yeah, please. Okay, let me, I see I have this all set up. Okay, so this is like, uh, not the beginning, but toward the beginning. Uh, and you know, the, the book starts with uh, the wedding night of Mina slash Dodie slash KK. Brings poking my butt, his arms and legs jutting in all my directions. KK and I sit on the velvet sofa in front of a 12 inch black and white TV, eating our first wedded meal, champagne and Kentucky fried. He coos, don't you just love Hill Street Blues? I look deep into his eyes, whatever. I'm happy as a hen, reminiscing. 11 o'clock last Thursday night, Frantic meows at the foot of my bed were driving me crazy. He appeared on the landing with two cans of cat food. I was wrapped in chenille from neck to ankles. 
and a regular V of flesh slang from cleavage to throat. I opened the door, reaching for the can opener. My gaze skimmed the bulge in his tight white pants. Kidney and gravy is nice, but how do you feel about bits of beef or kitty stew? The chenille was so hot, so heavy. One tug at the tie and I became a shattering of V's, a Duchamp nude. I reached for an extra crispy drumstick, my wedding band gleaming, white gold for the moon. When he slipped it on my finger, he whispered, I'll follow you anywhere like death follows life. I wipe a greasy mouth, my greasy mouth, wonder now that we're in the happily ever after, Later that evening, there's a power outage, carpe diem. On the dresser burned three brown candles, two in monolithic stands cut from red brick, the other born on the arched back of a wrought iron beast with a bird's head. Overdetermined archetypal, but I'm not immune. The spaghetti straps of my leopard skin chemise slide off my shoulders, KK still in street clothes. He rubs the burnished silk across my hip bone, lowers his ash lashes, ooh. I gobble the perfect air that touches his face. The shadow of a jade plant looms across the drapes and onto the ceiling. A tropical phantasm from the 40s, he says, I've come to meet you in the jungle, jungle girl. I rub his ass, the tarnished cotton glides easily over the firm muscle. I wedge my fingers beneath the waistband tender ridge across his lower back. Candlelight beats warily as though nervous across his thighs. I crack them apart and rub my nose against his soft hard cock, nostrils itching with fabric softener and urine. Less than a year ago, I stood in his hallway and wailed, I love you, sob, sob, I love you. Please let me spend the night, he said no. A mind like a ring sliding shut on some quick thing. But now I have him. Today is my wedding. And that line, a mind like a ring sliding shut on some quick thing, is Sylvia Plath, by the way. You know, a lot of the best lines in the, the book is are stolen. So, uh, Chris. Great. Thank you. That was actually the book that I wanted to start talking about Mina Harker. We're republishing that book this season together with Bereave. So Mina came out in 1998. And in it, the writer Jody Bellamy is intermittently inhabited by uh, the vampire Mina Harker. In the long conversation that you had with Kevin Killian, that's part of Bereaved, you talk about the stylistic opulence of that book. Um, and here's, I'm quoting you now, all the sex, cultural references, quotes, puns, poetry, parody, I crammed on top of one another. Each convoluted sentence screams, these words matter, Doty matters. Can you talk a little bit about the book, the concept of it, and how you worked on it then? Well, it started out as kind of a casual performance project. Like, it, like I would write letters to my friends. I, I think I was kind of, uh, I felt like I had, I wanted to bring sort of the energy of my writing life into my personal life. So I started writing these letters in the, in the voice of Mina. And a lot of people wrote back in the early days. And, uh, and then I got more and more into it. And it just 
became more and more elaborate and people stopped writing back. And, and then I just started uh, infusing the, the world in, in it, you know, like uh, the whole concept is Mina is this, what I call the heroine of Stoker's Dracula. She's the one whose soul they're fighting to save. Like she's been bitten, but she hasn't turned. So she's this liminal figure. And, and I kind of make her a goddess figure. And uh, so she's inhabiting Dodie's body. And so there's always this tension between Dodie and, and Mina. Like Mina is like this libidinal fabulous thing and Dodie is this repressed nerdy thing. And, and so, and, and just as Mina kind of invades Dodie's culture of psyche and body, I kind of started making the rest of the world invade her so that the movie movies invaded her books invaded her, you know, other people invaded her so that like, like it's a self that's like trying to figure out where it begins and the world ends and, and it, it never gets resolved. That's really interesting. So the novel just kind of like moved along in tandem with your life for yeah. a number of months or years. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 2012, you published um, a book called The Buddhist and that collected the blog writings that you were doing around that time. And these writings circled around a disappointing relationship with a Buddhist teacher, but they weren't really about that. They were about everything. It seems to me that the form you were developing here is the start of the kind of expanded essays that you published in When the Sick Rule the World in 2015 and Here Again and Bereaved. To me, your essays are completely indistinguishable from fiction. People talk about hybrid writing, but you push the essay to a whole new level. So how do you see the form and how did you get there? You know, I have no idea how I got there. Uh, I, I do think you know, like there was a, a focus when I was a young writer, everyone had magazines and, and you were supposed to write about your friends. So there was a focus on, on writing essays. And, and suddenly I, I had to sort of think like, okay, I don't, you don't want to write a college essay about your friends. Right. So like, how do you like make that form something that kind of fits you know, your avant-garde lifestyle. And so I was always thinking about that and, and working on it. But I, the Buddhist was really important in that, you know, Mina, you know, I, I love it, but it's very, very heightened. And it's, it's really like poetic. And it's like, each sentence is doing like 50 things. And it's, you know, it's, it's intense, right? It's, it's, you know, but it's good. It's like a woman taking up too much space. We always have to support that, right, Chris? And, uh, but the Buddhist was just a blog that I, I did and it had like about 25 avid followers. And, and I, I kind of explored like kind of operatic suffering and, and, and various topics. But I was doing, I had this, sort of joint residency at Camera Works with Coulter Jacobson. And uh, Coulter was doing publication studios at the time, you know, which is kind of a, a network of, of this press. It's like a, like a network and each little pod prints their own books and mails them out. And so Coulter says, why don't we make a book out of this? So I had to sort of think like, how, what's the difference between a blog post and a book? And I suddenly felt 
very uncomfortable. It totally changed when it was a book. But I also, what I noticed when I was doing that is that the writing was very straightforward and I was embarrassed by that. And I had to think about like, what values have I taken on that I would be embarrassed by being straightforward, right? That that, that was stupid or something. And so, so it really like, I think it cleaned up my writing and, and, and that that was sort of the basis of moving to the essay. Cause I, I do the same things I do in Mina and everything, but they're in like kind of wider, you know, that maybe they're, they're dealing with a paragraph rather than a sentence, you know, they're, they're kind of more relaxed uh, landscape. Yeah, often your essays kind of move along with you from day to day in your real life. And that, I think, leads to these unexpected and surprising connections. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything starts with notes that I take. I mean, my journal, I hardly ever write in my journal just as like, blah, blah, blah. It's almost always notes for writing. So things are accrued over time. And then they're eventually typed up and, and, and shaped so that, so that, yeah, so they do track sort of my personal life maybe, but also sort of my engagement with the material and the way it shifts right. over time. And yeah, surprises always, it's kind of freakish, the coincidences that happen, right? When you're, you're working on something. Even I've seen uh, talks by biographers where they'll have their subject and then they'll get on a bus and they're sitting next to a relative of the person, you know, like these weird freakish coincidences, like they're summoning the information to themselves. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, the new essay book, Bereaved, is divided in half. Um, the first part is here and the second part is where. The pieces in here were written before Kevin Killian's death in June 2019. And the ones in where came after. So you were originally putting together another essay collection, which was going to be a follow-up to When the Sick Grow the World. But after Kevin's death, grief enters everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the collection that I was comprising over this period of time was, was very much about mortality and the body and aging. So that the the essays they they resonate with the the grieving stuff, but, but yeah, it was sort of like, what do I do? Do I just do a book of the pieces about his death? Do I just do a, a book about the other stuff? So I just listening to Nick Cave, I got this like inspiration <laughs> to just like put all this stuff before he died in one half. And, and then this stuff after he died in the other half, it's, it's like the simplest solution in the world. Right. And, uh, and I also wanted to have, like, we did a number of collaborative essays and some of them were in the form of dialogue, but there were more than it's in the book. So the ones that were in the form of dialogue, I put in there and also put in uh, a kind of a, a group memoir project that Kevin and I were doing before he died, because I wanted, I figured if this book is about loss and the loss of him, then it would make sense to have people experience him firsthand, right? Yeah. In the piece you just read, Plague Widow, um, Dodie or Bereaves grief dovetails with the disaster of COVID and with her cat Sylvia's harrowing death of cancer. You describe a world that's so grotesquely bleak that it's also hilarious. 
the narrator veers between making cosmic and brilliant connections between things and just being petty. I was really struck by the way you're not afraid to reflect the resentment that you felt about all the people claiming Kevin Killian after his death. So I wanted to ask, do you think the price of appearing as a narrator is that you have to show all sides of yourself and your thoughts, including the less than desirable ones? Well, I don't think as a narrator, you have to do anything. Uh, I think that you want to create some sort of sense that that you're trustworthy to the reader. And, and one of the ways to do that is to, sh to show some vulnerability there. So uh, I would think uh, that would, I thought of something else to respond to what you said, but uh, my little brain has lost it. Yeah. Well, that's uh, okay. We can move on to the next thing. Um, the dialogue that um, that's in the book between you and Kevin, it's called Kevin and Dodie, was uh -huh. recorded over six weeks. And that was your first collaboration, right? Um, well, it was our first collaboration that wasn't like one of these, that wasn't a commissioned essay. Yeah, it was the first, we were supposed to write a book together for was it Attilo's press the is that what Linhaginian's press whatever it is like back in the 90s and we every time we would try to do it and we were gonna call it eyewitness so it's going to be about our lives and and we st we're starting with the death of John Wieners because we both had John Wieners stories and we talk about this in the thing we finally did and we got one paragraph written. It was impossible. It was gonna, we were gonna get divorced if we wrote this book. Like we couldn't do it. So, so it was, it just seemed kind of interesting that at the, the last year we focused a lot on collaboration and, and the dialogue seemed to be a way for us to do it because we didn't bicker about what really happened. It didn't matter if, if we had different points of view, for instance. And, and also Kevin collaborated a lot. People love collaborating with him, but every piece he collaborated on sounded just like he wrote it. And that wasn't gonna fly with me. So right. there, was, there would be tension there too, so. There's also something great about using the dialogue form that makes things less definitive. Do you feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just more open and fluid, and you know, not not being forced to be definitive in that way. Yeah, for sure. And the book is so much about grief and grieving. And I wonder, I mean, you must have read lots of grief books during this period. And I wonder if there's any that you recommend that you think were really good. Okay, so, okay, Chris gave me these questions ahead of time and I decided to be spontaneous, but now for this question. So I actually typed up some stuff cause I won't remember. So I'm just gonna read what I typed out. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Or like what I, uh... okay, so the question were there any books about grief that you'd recommend that you found helpful? So I read Joan Didion's, or, or a lot of it, Year of Magical Thinking. And from that, I learned that it was okay, that being okay should not be a goal. And also I was comforted by how she couldn't write for a year because that gave me a certain permission to accept my limitations. I felt that Joan Didion wasn't very good at interiority. But her focus on detail 
like almost fetishizing them felt true to my experience. The book is oddly tedious and I was surprised it was so popular. She's a star for sure, but I think the popularity of the book suggests how starved for acknowledgement of death we are in America, for rituals around death, like it's a big secret. I also read Roland Barthes' morning diary, or much of it, and the fragment structures seem perfect for an experience of trauma. Like sometimes the entries felt like little pangs. And uh, Hetty, who's here, told me about this passage from Proust a character who says he thinks about his dead wife often, but he can't think about her for a long time. And, and that made me sort of think about how grief is a sort of covering your eyes with your hands. And at once in a while you peek out, like you, you can't like take it in in big gulps. I read a lot about after death communications and, and then the, the way people die of COVID was essentially the same way Kevin died with the lungs catastrophically filling with fluids. So I read a lot about death by COVID. Also he had metastasized uh, lung cancer to his brain. So I read a lot about brain tumors. I read uh, Crescent Dragonwell, the vegetarian cookbook person has a blog about grieving. And uh, I heard about her from Pragita Sharma who's been incredibly supportive of me during this time. Like I, we knew each other from like group dinners at writing conferences. And, and she, like, she sent me this like incredibly soft fussy blanket to comfort myself, which I thought was so great. Anyway, I read her book, Grief Sequence, uh, which was about the death of her first husband. It's a book of poetry. I read a lot about dissociation. I read cheesy online stuff about grief and widowhood, and there's a whole industry in that. And I could quit my job and make widowhood my occupation and cash in if I wanted to, if I had a different personality. I read about Virginia Woolf and grief, but never got to rereading any of her novels because Virginia Woolf comes a lot up a lot when you're researching grief. Uh, I had a much more rigorous schedule of reading planned, but I nibbled at it. On my computer, I found a PDF of Derrida's Adieu, written in response to the death of Emmanuel Levinas. I know I didn't read that. Uh, I was interested in books about women surviving under extreme circumstances. I thought often about rereading Crystal Wolf's Accident. And even though I could never manage that, I thought about the book so often. And since I read it so long ago, my memory of it's fuzzy. So it's just sort of this trope that exists. Yeah. Okay. So is that too that's long? A that's a lot. <laughs> Informal. It does, but as far as anything I would recommend to help you through it, mm -mm. it nothing helps. You know, you kind of read every, it's like you read just like each baby has to learn to walk. Each person has to go through this, figure it out, you know? Dodie, thank you so much. Um, Peter, we're going to take some questions now from people here, right? Yeah. So How are we going to do that? The, um, well, first, I'm going to encourage people to uh, to actually post some questions. I really only have one so far. Let me see if I can scroll back to it. Let's see. I think Matt mentions uh, how the Harvard Library 
Bot, Dodie, and Kevin's archive, are there any funny anecdotes around that? Well, I, I kind of wrote about funny anecdotes and upset the librarians. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. So. I, you know, I guess the funniest thing is is that I was just like this total diva and did not have anything to do with it. It was like Kevin had a couple of assistants, Eric Sneathan and Jeffrey Wildinger helped him. And uh, I guess Jeffrey. Okay, Jeffrey was one of the uh, what do you call it? Davis six or something, you know, the people that got arrested and there are the photos of being pe pepper sprayed that made the news. Well, Jeffrey was one of those. And, you know, he was like on the getting his doctorate on the East coast. So he didn't live here, but he got community service. So he had to come back to California and do con community service, but his parents were here. So through small press traffic, he got doing our archives as his community service for being <laughs> an anarchist. So <laughs> <laughs> so is that a good one <laughs> uh, yeah so but I didn't pay any attention to it so I have no idea what's there and I'm constantly embarrassed when I see what's there and it's like my own fault so well folks come on any more no I'm not gonna wrap it up this early well, I will encourage everybody, please do buy a book. Uh, we have posted the links and uh, there's lots to buy, both Chris's and Dodie's books. And also I uh, posted a link for the uh, Semiotex website. So please do check that out. City Lights was one of the first places you could actually purchase Semiotex books. And as a teenager, I remember going down to the basement and looking for the rotisserie like at least once a month just to see if there were any new books. So it was really a, kind of a, a neat thing. So, okay, here we go. So we got uh, something from Dino. Is reading about grief a way to delay confronting grief? No, I think they're two different things. They're just, uh, you know, it's like the way we're set up. You know, I watch YouTube videos on show me how to do everything I do in my life. And you can, you can Google anything. You can find a video that will tell you how to do it, right? Really stupid stuff. And so I think that it's sort of like, okay, I'm in this situation now. I want to read a guide, but I don't think it delays the morning. It just sort of takes up time. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, okay, here we go. Uh, Heather says, hi, Dodie, when it comes to writing about grief, are there any strange emotions you felt or were surprised by that you tried to portray in your writing? Emotions maybe we don't normally associate with grief. I don't know. I think, uh, well, it was hard because, I mean, at first I couldn't feel anything to about Kevin except anger and betrayal, <laughs> you know, and so, it took a, re I was surprised how long it took until I could feel anything like, like positive toward him. But I think to me, that was kind of mar marvelous, you know, like I just sort of, what I learned is like the brain will only let you experience what you're capable of and, and feeling anger toward him was much more easy than feeling caring because then you're going to be locked into that loss. Yeah. Uh, Matt 
comments. Wasn't there a plan for a somewhat extravagant memorial for Kevin? Whatever happened to that? It happened at uh, SF MoMA, like a few months after he died. So, okay, let's see. A uh, question for Dodi: Do you write on paper or only ever type on computer? I start writing longhand in my journal, and then I type it in. And then once it's in there, it's it go. It's mostly uh, on the computer. But you know, I keep a journal beside my bed, and I I usually I wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning, and it's like things are dictated to me. So then I write them down. So there's a little bit of going back and forth, but mostly it starts in the journal, ends on the computer. Okay. It's not like the old days where I have to do printouts and, and correct by hand. I'm way, way past that, you know, in terms of getting used to this. So Evan uh, comments, Dodie, bereaved is tremendous. Thank you. New narrative has always been fixated on community. You write, quote, every step I take, my community steps with me, unquote. What about solitude? I'm having trouble thinking about my literary community during the pandemic as things have been slow to restart. Well, Evan, I don't know. Do you really wanna go back to the Bay Area literary community? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so I don't know. Like I say, it was like I had solitude and then I had super solitude and uh, I think that my relationship to community without Kevin having been is is like very different and and I don't really know what it's like. I don't so I, I've sort of just sort of uh, stepping out and trying to figure that out. And it's, it's not a very comfortable state to be in. And I don't know, I think people are fraught. Uh, like I went to this art opening and they had a taco truck and then they had all these chairs on the street. And so we sat out and drank the wine that was provided and ate the tacos and sat on the street, all these, and there were all these people that I hadn't seen in like almost two years. A lot of people, it was their first time out. And, and it was really beautiful, but I mean, some of them, their faces were so sad, you know, like these really sad eyes. And this, so you could just feel the kind of trauma and, and not knowing what, how to move forward, so. So finally, Juliana comments, um, I was curious to hear about your experiences teaching and whether how students today are responding to or using new narrative books approaches. Autofiction seems popular, but different now. Curious what you think about it. Well, I don't teach anything that would touch that, so I can't really respond to that. I don't know, I feel weird about the auto fiction, auto theory thing, because it's something that really had nothing to do with my formation as a writer. But now I'm like kind of, quote, in conversation with it. And it's kind of a conversation that I'm not interested in. So I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, Chris has been much more involved in that, like in the before yeah, it became super popular. Not, equally not interested. <laughs> 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 now we're best girlfriends yeah we can bond on that <laughs> so lauren comments i love the way you write about art Dodie. tell us about your favorite artists these days oh god <laughs> uh 
that I would need to think ahead of time for that. Cause I have been really excited by a lot of people and I've been doing a lot of uh, reading about photography and getting very excited, but an obvious person that comes to mind, uh, was it Moose magazine? It's like an Italian art magazine. Had me write about Penny Goring, who I had never heard of. And, you know, it's just heartthrob. I just loved her work so much. And it was just sort of about these kind of, there are these weird dolls that have uh, very weird body parts and they're in, in weird, they're all about kind of these pathetic visceral dolls and, and, and drawings and, and also the fact that uh, at least at that point, she was hit, she was just starting to show in galleries and having shows. Before that, it was she was like a, a Tumblr artist a lot, and and so she told the magazine to have me look at her Tumblr, which, and it's like the Tumblr and the gallery. They, I loved how they seem like. It wasn't like the gallery was here and the Tumblr was down here. They seem like equal. They were just different ways of expressing what was going on. So I I really like that non hierarchical stance and uh anyway but i could uh lauren i could talk to you about this if you give me a minute sometime uh, lauren is i think is this the lauren that's going to be interviewing me yes lauren <laughs> is going to be interviewing me <laughs> so hetty asks or comments also this is something we talked about how there's an expiration date for grieving in the culture, like you're supposed to get over it. Can you tell yeah. us your thoughts about that? Yeah, we talk, Hetty and I talk about this a lot, right? Uh, no, I think that that's, well, that was, I don't know, like Joan Didion saying that being okay is should not be your goal. I needed somebody to tell me that. And I think, yeah, we're, we live in this culture, like you get a year, that's it. And, and anybody who's really experienced grief knows that it, it kind of never stops. Right. And even when you think you're, you're kind of, you're not going to get over it. You just sort of, it can just come zooming back. You know, it's like you step into a room and, and it's there again. So, and uh, yeah, I feel that we should acknowledge that there, it isn't like this little step, process and some people have said that like kind of the phases of grief really were never written for grief they were written for people who were terminally ill and they don't they're false you know so uh yeah I don't know I'm I don't know why I'm always trying to have these like definitions of myself and you know all the ways that I've been fucked up and stuff never fits any category and then I'm like always trying to say okay this is the, this is what I am. And it's, it's just silly, right? It's just a category. Well, on that, that note, you, Hetty? <laughs> <laughs> we're about out of time. Thank you so very much. And Chris, you make a great interlocutor. Dodie, congratulations. Thank you. Um, the only thing that's missing is really being able to take you out for, out for drinks or, or a bite to eat. I do miss that a lot these days. So a rain check is in order. Looking forward to better days. Uh, I also want to remind everyone we have posted the links with which you may buy books. 
that is all for now. Everyone, please be safe, be well. Look forward to seeing you all again soon. Dodie, any last words? No, just thank you all. And I'm so happy to see so many friends here. So thank you for okay. coming. Good night. Good night, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.